welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And Ethan, we are back with number 20 on the AFI Top 100 list. That's 1946's It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. A film almost certainly everyone knows whether or not they've seen it. Yes, if you, yes, everybody knows this film. Everyone. I don't think I've ever seen it from start to finish. I don't think I have either until yesterday. (laughs) I feel like that's the nature of a Christmas film. Yes, this movie plays on repeat at Christmas time, and you watch 30 minutes here and 20 minutes there and 15 minutes here and then another 45 minutes there. Nobody watches this movie from start to finish. Nobody does. I'm sure there are families who say, okay, this is our Christmas movie. We're sitting down. We're watching this entire film from start to finish. Surely, but they're sick in the head. <laughs> are you saying that your family doesn't have a Christmas film? Uh, no, not really. We just It's just whatever's on TV. We, we watch about 20 minutes of one, 40 minutes of another. Muppets so on TV. Christmas Carol for us. Muppets Christmas Carol. <laughs> but that's enough of that. Why don't we... Educate some people if they haven't seen the film and give them a little bit of a plot synopsis. Yes, they need to hear the story in order, right? Exactly. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't know. I was really surprised at how much of it. Well, we'll talk about it. So It's a Wonderful Life is the story of George Bailey, a resident of Bedford Falls, New York, who is contemplating suicide on Christmas Eve. His friends and relatives pray for him and the prayers reach heaven. His guardian angel, Clarence, is assigned to help him and Clarence is filled in on George's life. Clarence observes George as a young man who saves his younger brother from drowning, getting sick and losing his hearing in one ear in the process. George also stops his employer, a pharmacist, from accidentally poisoning children. After high school, George plans to travel to Europe and then enroll in college, but on the eve of his travels, his father dies of a stroke, leaving George in charge of the building and the loan that his father owned. Henry Potter, a local bigwig, hopes to dissolve the building and loan, but is voted down by the board on the condition that George stay on to run it. So George forgoes college to do so, giving up his saved money to his brother on the condition that his brother will return and run the building and loan when he graduates. Four years later, his brother returns newly married with better job prospects, so George refuses to let him turn these better jobs down and stays on at the building and loan. George eventually marries his sweetheart, Mary, and after their wedding, George is able to manage a run-on-the-bank panic that could have ruined the building and loan. This is during the Depression. He uses his $2,000 honeymoon savings to pay people out because they don't actually have cash on hand, but the business does remain open. In the subsequent years, George develops Bailey Park, a neighborhood of small houses financed through the building and loan. Potter, who owns a lot of rental properties, tempts Bailey to work for him, but George sees through his scheme, which is ultimately to eliminate his competition in the building and loan. So he turns him down. During World War II, George does not serve due to his ear, but he works hard to help the war effort at home. His brother becomes a decorated veteran, and the town plans a party for his return on Christmas Day. On Christmas Eve, George's uncle and employee sees Potter at the bank and taunts him with his newspaper. He accidentally manages to mix his envelope full of cash to be deposited with Potter's paper, and Potter secretly decides to keep the money to ruin the building and loan. Billy, that's George's uncle, realizes that he's lost the cash 
and when he tells George, the two realize that they are ruined, particularly because of the untimely arrival of the bank examiner. George takes his frustration out on his family and begs Potter for a loan. Potter, in return, calls the police. George heads to the town bridge to kill himself after getting drunk in a bar, knowing the insurance money will save the business and his family. He believes that, as Potter says, he's better off or he's worth more alive than dead. But his guardian angel, Clarence, appears. Clarence throws himself in the water, knowing George will save him rather than kill himself. As the two warm up in the bridge's office, which I thought, I realized that was kind of a weird thing. There's an office for the bridge? I don't know, we'll talk about it. George wishes he was never born in this office. Clarence, enamored with the idea, convinces the officials in heaven to make it happen. George and Clarence then visit Bedford Falls, which is now called pottersville to see what the town would be like without george it has become an unpleasant place and all of george's friends and family have suffered without him he realizes that his life was good and he wishes for everything to be back to normal when he returns to the regular bedford falls he's overjoyed even despite the fact that the police are at his home to arrest him but before they can do so mary and the citizens arrive with cash all gifts from those George had helped throughout his life. They provide enough money to make up for the deficit, and as George's brother arrives, everybody celebrates. As the movie ends, George hears the bell on his Christmas tree ring, indicating Clarence's success and acquisition uh, of his wings. So a pretty tearjerker ending. Oh, yeah. I mean, Absolutely. I think you're inhuman if you don't feel emotional by that ending. Yes, I think so. Despite its sentimentality, which, of course, oh, the movie is riddled tripping. with it. Yeah. But that's fine. It's a Christmas movie. That's the point. Although I think we can somewhat cheapen the moment if we talk about that. These are just people paying George back. Like, these are loans, and they owe him money. That's true. And they're that's finally true. just delivering on what they were supposed to do the entire time. Because if they had, this had never been a problem for George. True. That is true. They are paying back their loans. <laughs> um, so they're not really, you know, it's not charity necessarily. Yeah, it's not a supererogatory action because it's already the action that they're required to make in that financial contract that they have made with George's business. Right. Although I get the sense that George doesn't seem to really be writing these loans down. He, you know, he's just loaning people money whenever they need it. Yeah, he's... Like his father, in that he is too good or not cutthroat enough for this kind of business. Yes, he's not He's not a cold-hearted capitalist like Potter. And this is actually a great place to turn to our pivot, so we can go ahead and get that out of the way. Sure. About 30 minutes into the movie, George's father dies, and this is George about to leave. He's got the morning band on. We know his father's dead, and he's leaving, and Potter is saying, oh, well... You know, Bailey never had any business sense. He had these so-called high ideals. And that's what is driving this place into the ground. And it's George that fires back. And this is why they eventually want him to run the place that says, yeah, these are the people who live and die and work. Why can't they be more comfortable while they do it? And he's really just about credit for people who could not afford it to allow them a better quality of life. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and listen to the scene. Let's talk about the implications of that afterwards. I'll say that to the public, Peter Bailey was the building in law. Oh, that's fine, Potter, coming from you, considering that you probably drove him to his grave. Peter Bailey was not a businessman. 
that's what killed him. Oh, I don't mean any disrespect to him, God rest his soul. He was a man of high ideals, so-called. But ideals without common sense can ruin this town. <laughs> now, you take this loan here to Ernie Bishop. You know, that fellow that sits around all day on his brains in his taxi, you know. I happen to know the bank turned down this loan. But he comes here, and we're building him a house worth $5,000. Why? Well, I handled that, Mr. Potter. You have all the papers there, his salary, insurance. I can personally vouch for his character. Friend of yours? Yes, sir. Uh, you see, if you shoot pool with some employee here, you can come and borrow money. <laughs> what does that get us? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute, just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny-ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Well, he... Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they... What'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I... You're the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. The reason I chose this is it's eerily parallel to, like, the 2008 housing crisis. Mm -hmm. Except for George has good intentions, and we can rest assured there were no really good intentions in the housing crisis. <laughs> Yeah. So George is saying, look, extend these people credit, even though they really can't afford to pay it back because they deserve to live in somewhere nicer. So it is kind of a nonprofit charity that George is running mm -hmm. under the guise of a loan like bank. Yeah. I mean, he is the, the, the nice difference between him and the 2008 uh, housing bubble is that he's not lending people money to buy McMansions. True. <laughs> yeah, they're living in the equivalent of like a Habitat Humanity house, although it appears like yeah. these houses are a bit nicer, right? Because everyone keeps talking about how nice those houses look. Yeah, but they're modest. They're definitely modest. So it's George who actually has this ideological difference between him and potter and that ideology has doesn't fit in his current role which 
I think gets us closer to what the film is trying to say because George is always poised to do great things and go elsewhere. And through a series of circumstances, he's never able to, right? His father's death, his brother going off to college, brother coming back married, his brother having a better job, which if I'm George, there's no way you can hold your brother accountable and say, okay, I'm paying you for your college in four years for coming back and you're doing this because even though that might be like a binding contract, you can write it all up and everything. There's no way that someone going off to college and graduating is not going to have a profound effect on their life prospects. Right. Not just materially, but also mentally. So yeah. George kind of, I think, realizes that. says, okay, well, I can't really hold him to that. But yeah. I think this film is trying to say you're always where you need to be. Mm-hmm. They needed George Bailey to fight against Potter in Bedford Falls, even though George was probably just as suited to doing something else out in the world. Yeah. But... I think what kind of undermines that is the fact that Potter's just an absolute villain. Oh, absolute villain. Pure evil. Pure evil. He is pure evil. He is the... There are no redeeming qualities at all for him. Nope, nothing. You think, oh, well, you'd find out that his sickness and infirmity has led him to be this kind of person. But he's just an unrepentant bad guy. Yes. Who effectively (laughs) steals $8,000 and then tries to get them arrested for it. Yes. And that's never set to rights. You'd expect in a film, and maybe I expect it in a film of this time, that all that comes full circle and they find out and then Potter gets put in jail because that's a very, like, even more sentimental ending, right? Mm-hmm. But instead, it's just like, Potter's going to keep doing Potter things and it's just the population has to come and make up a deficit. So Potter's $8,000 richer. I hope that shows up on his IRS return and he gets arrested. Right exactly well and it's it's cash too so and i mean this is what the 40s so it's like eh, cash it's gone yeah and it just points to that george doesn't surround himself with the best people like they don't have the best business sense like his uncle is so forgetful why are you putting him in charge of the money (laughs) yeah and i read on the internet that the eight thousand dollars in today's money was like a hundred it was over a hundred thousand dollars yeah which is intense uh, utterly insane do, do not let the person who can't remember to come to your wedding take the the cash drop yeah, that's a really good point he forgets to come to your wedding you're like here take this hundred thousand dollars and go deposit yeah. in the bank that'll be fine yeah. he's got other employees there are two other people that work there yeah or do it yourself or just do it yourself right ethan you want to talk about the bridge office the bridge office, yes. Do you think it's like a toll, like a toll bridge? That's what it's got to be, right? I was going to say, y'all guys have toll bridges where you're from, right? Yes. So yes. that's that's not something we have here in Texas, at least not in the same way there's you know toll roads. But yeah, that, yeah, that I, office, I, mean, I, I just assume. I don't know that there are a lot of toll bridges anymore. There's definitely one on the border of Iowa and Illinois. That's true. You're right. You're right. Well, they're like toll. Yeah, they're, they're kind of like toll roads now. I mean, there's not a little office though anymore there's some place for a person to to be inside there's definitely a person there uh well i guess maybe you're right yeah i was just some, i was, lot, I was in, just there in a lot of places there are the there's the the scanner thingy that yeah it's the little thing in your car more like yeah, not pro- automatic but yeah even now they still have some people manning booths so i imagine in the 40s they would have had a whole office for this person because they're there for 12 hours probably yeah, I guess I uh, yeah, I guess you're right. Cause I was thinking about that when I was writing that. I was like, why are they in this weird office? They're there to get this guy freaked out by angels. 
Well, yes. It quote unquote angels. Although he's easily freaked out. I don't know. This guy's dropping a lot of stuff about it. he's like, Well, I was I was buried in these clothes. <laughs> stuff like that, right? Right. Tom Sawyer's uh or uh, um Mark Twain's new book he keeps talking about. Yeah, what are you writing now? <laughs> the thing that bothers me more about that sequence is before they get into the office where George is like, okay, I'm going to kill myself by jumping off this bridge. And I don't mean to get too grotesque about things, but the mechanics of that is that one jumps off a bridge to kill oneself because it's like hitting cement at that height, right? So you don't survive. So the fact that Clarence is in the water saying, come save me, and that prompts George to jump off the bridge right doesn't track like if you have george say oh no i need to save that man run off the bridge run down the embankment then jump in that's one thing but to actually go through with the method of suicide that he would have done if there had been no clarence is not a great like visual way but he wouldn't have dived (laughs) i guess i mean i don't know sure yeah if you try diving into cement though the same thing will happen that's true yeah i yeah well, I guess maybe that tells us that he was never really in danger of dying, right? Yeah, I mean, that could be a good point, unless we think the method of him dying is that he was drunk and he couldn't maybe swim. or so Maybe couldn't swim, or he's going to put rocks in his pockets or something. Or he needed the the he needed someone in danger in order to save them, otherwise he would have just floundered and died there. Yeah. It's a bit of a weak, like, visual language there i think is what i'm saying it is kind of when you when you get down to it i think you're right well i mean i guess at the end of the day this movie the judeo-christian uh stuff aside this is a pretty unrepentantly anti-capitalist movie Mm -hmm. i mean i think that's probably worth pointing out that like and, and it feels kind of timely uh right now because i think there is a push right now against I mean, you know, Potter is Potter is a Trumpian character in a lot of ways. If we want to put it in today's context, got the same hair, right? Exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, it is interesting to see this movie make such a strong statement about, and this is a really beloved movie, and I think that maybe maybe that gets lost for a lot of people. But like, this is a, this basically points out that like, you know, capitalism and banks. Uh, and landlords and all of that, like you, you if, unregulated, they this is what they will do. It will be Potter's Town that you live in. Although Potter's Town seemed like it was pretty fun, to be honest. Maybe for Ethan, but I think for <laughs> George Bailey, that place is a nightmare. Yeah, I think. I, yeah, I think exactly. It's all slums and strip clubs and bad bars. Yeah, well, you know, I love a good dive bar. But yeah, so I think that is, and this is for, again for a movie that so many people I think love, and I think maybe it's because people don't watch it the whole way through. That's something I think we can talk about in our three questions. But you posited that this is the dangers of capitalism, the evils of capitalism. I think you can also make the other argument in that this is an argument for capitalism with a heart, right, with George Bailey, yeah, and sort of the free loan he gives. Right, and but I mean, what is capitalism with a heart but like, you know, socialism light? Or basically just charity. Or charity, right? Uh, or like highly regulated capitalism. 
like deregulated. Or, well, no, I know. I would say it would would be regulated. There are all these rules of what you should and shouldn't do, and people follow them because people don't follow the rules unless there are rules, you know. Well, not with George Bailey, right? Like when we see the well, yeah. bank about to fold, and he's handing out his personal money. Which I want to point out that it's Mary who offers the money initially. So yeah, it is. That's I think a good thing to show that George is not just unilateral in his decision making and ruining their futures because it's what he wants to do right. it seems like they're more of a team in this but yeah when he's handing out the money to the guy he's like i'll take 240 242 dollars and you're like well how much can you get how much do you need and he says 242 dollars <laughs> he says that closes my account it's like no it doesn't this is a loan you owe me money like why does this guy think that He's he's like, oh, I'm through with this. So no one's right. really being held to the rules with George, and it's only his uncle that's writing things down. George just seems to be giving money out to have people be satiated. Right. Well, and also, and I just because I like this, that $2,000 for their honeymoon would be $40,000 in today's money. I mean, he saved it up, man. He was ready to go around the world. Who's who's going on a $40,000 honeymoon? What? Well... I could say there's probably quite a few people who do that. True, I guess you're right. But not from Bedford Falls. Well, think about the fact that George has been trying to get away his entire life. Literally his entire life. And yeah, I guess this is his, yeah. This is his last hurrah, and he's doing it with his wife, and he says, okay, we're going to do all this, then we're going to go back and do good. And it's it'd be really nice if they were able to do that. Yeah. But he's like Spider-Man, and he always has to put the people of his town first before his romantic interest yeah he's too good of a guy they're like driving away in the taxi and stupid eddie is like oh something bad's happening at your place of business like what that's not the day for this eddie yeah please don't tell him that (laughs) so ethan i think perhaps now it's maybe time to turn to our three questions sure let's do it before that let's talk about anchor okay so ethan the three questions so matt the three questions first question what do we owe to this film? Um, well, I think this idea the the you've never been born. What what if you had never been born? Really, in all of its, it's been imitated a million times, right? I mean, you've seen this in I've seen it in cartoons and other movies and TV shows and all of that. And I think that it, you know, this may not have originated it, but I think this is what sticks in people's mind as the text for what if you had never been born sure so i think there's definitely that right talking about originators i think maybe dickens a christmas carol yeah definitely makes this movie possible yes absolutely obviously a christmas movie incidentally mentioned it earlier in the episode but it is not where someone has never been born, but they're seeing the effects that they have had or have not had outside yeah. of themselves. Whereas George Bailey's directly imbricated in all that goes down in Pottersville. He's, uh, you know, just a bum basically during that time. But same ideas apply. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that the talking galaxies was from this, you know? Oh, really? Well, I mean, I had never seen it anywhere prior to, like, parody stuff, and I think Futurama stands out really big with using that. Right. So to see it here was really surprising. So I guess I don't know for a fact that that 
comes from this, but it was something I had never seen prior to contemporary media. And yeah, famously they use it, right? Right. Which that's the way the film starts, and I thought, what is happening? Yeah, I had never really. Th- this is. I thought this is an interesting thing. Like because this film has, I've seen it. I'm sure I've seen it the whole runtime, probably forty times, but never in straight order. The the setup is is kind of strange, and the the, the um, you know, what if what if you had never been born? Part was really only ten minutes at the end. Yeah, it's almost like thirty, but yeah, it's it's way smaller chunk of time than one would expect of the cultural idea of what's it it's a wonderful life is about yeah i mean 75 percent of the film is a coming of age tale yeah it's just his normal life yeah his normal life has the uh financial spider-man of this town yes i also think that a little weird connection high noon okay it's about someone who's getting out of the game getting married and then gets pulled back in and has to deal with the fallout of it (laughs) literally driving away and then they see a problem and then someone points it out and then they stay right so that moment is very similar so i don't know if that's actually connected but it seems like pretty compelling that those two are very similar hero archetypes yeah i that's that's a really interesting uh uh observation because that i think that is absolutely happening in this over and over he's always trying to get out i get out of the game i'm I'm done i'm done with this job of course it's not a western but that is it's an interesting cross genre thing because it works in both genres yeah so you know if you're an aspiring filmmaker out there try that (laughs) move (laughs) so ethan let's go to our second question and does this film hold up I think, uh, yes, I, I think it does, actually. Now, having watched uh, from start to finish, I, I really do think it does. I think it is, uh, so many shots in this film are uh, feel pretty iconic. I mean, even just the like the, the this shot of walking into a graveyard and the wind is whipping his clothes, I feel like that has been, that's become a uh, sort of language for, like, things are not right you know, uh, and all these like sort of close up shots. I mean, the, the shots, this is a beautifully shot film, mm-hmm. um, and, and carefully shot, um, in a way that a lot of these films from this era that we've watched on this list are not right. It's almost like, it's almost noir level sort of f- cinematography. Yeah. There are some moments where we have these extreme closes, close ups on George's face and that feels very noir esque as he's experiencing some great emotion, you know? So I think it's a very beautifully shot film. I, I mean, I think, and, and like I said earlier, I think that a lot of the uh, message here is is still valid right now. That like, yeah, if you let capitalism run rampant, if you let the banks run rampant, if you let rich people consolidate all of their power, you know, if you, you know, the, the idea that people will have a conscience and act you know, in, in the interest of the larger, you know, body of people without any incentive, uh, is, is silly. I think that that's a, uh, we, that, that we were dealing with that right now, right? This is, this is a big political debate right now. I agree with all that. I will say though, that one thing that doesn't hold up great is super heavily made up James Stewart to be like 18. 
James, when he at one point when James Stewart talks about how he's 28, I was like, bull fucking shit. You look 65 and you're only, and he was in reality only like 40. <laughs> yeah, I think the way that it shot the, the makeup, you could just see it caked on in those yeah. earlier scenes, but that's a minor thing. I think it visually holds up really well for all the reasons we talked about. I think also just the fact that they had a set that was three blocks long. Mm-hmm. Just this massive undertaking to create Bedford Falls slash Pottersville. Mm-hmm. I think that holds up really well. I think everything looks great there. I mean, we know, I mean, we know their sets, but yeah, we've. I think we've talked about this in the past. I really enjoy that aesthetic, even though we know it's like a 1940s, 50s set. It kind of yeah. looks like a Disney World, where you know it's a facade, but it's kind mm-hmm. of more beautiful because it's a facade. Yeah. That's something I'm really it's all idealized. Yeah. So I think that holds up really well. I do have one thing to say, sort of speaking of, you know, if George Bailey had never been born, if the film had never been made, what if Cary Grant was the lead rather than James Stewart? Oh. Because that was what was supposed to happen. You know, James Stewart has such a under, he's got such an underdog sweetness to him. Right, when Mr. Smith goes to Washington, big example of that. Yeah, he feels very earnest. And I, you know, I'm sure this movie would have been fine with with, uh, Cary Grant, but I think it would have maybe lost some of its charm. Because Jimmy Stewart really does have that, like, he's such an earnest actor. He can really, you know, play that role. Yeah, I don't think the film would have been as successful if it were right. Grant helming it rather than Stewart. I'm with you. I really I really think that it would still probably be, you know, an important film or whatever, but maybe not quite the uh, runaway success that it is. Yeah, runaway success that it is, I want to mention, though, wasn't at the time. This mm-hmm. film got trounced at the box office in the Academy Awards. Yeah. Do you know to what film it lost out to? Shit, I just saw this the other day. It was one of, it's uh, not that many films ago on the list. Right. It's number 37 on the list, which is Best Years of Our Lives, the World Best War II year, yes, film yes. with the veterans coming home. So, released in the same year. So, this film actually didn't do very well in the theaters. It is higher on the list, as we know. Many places higher on the list. So, maybe critically has lasted longer than Best Years of Our Lives. But, at the time, got beat out handily to that. Yeah, Best Years of Our Lives definitely feels a lot more um, in the right place at the right time. Right, nineteen forty-six. You know. Well, yeah, and well, and it's and it's and it's pandering to that, right? Like yeah. it is even more sentimentally pandering to that than this is, which is a little bit. I mean, there's a little bit of that here. Sure. Um, and I think that when you pander like that a little bit, it doesn't. That sort of thing doesn't necessarily hold. I mean, nobody's watching Best Days of Our Lives every year. Uh, <laughs> on tv probably not ethan let's go to our third question and do we care yeah. about this film i think yeah i think we do i think it's strong anti-capitalism uh or at least anti sort of evil capitalism message really resonates i think that it's sort of um you know don't look don't look too far off into the distance and see how you're uh you know important and useful here uh, that sort of sentimental uh, approach, I think, it, it still resonates. Yeah, I, I, I think we do care about this film. 
I agree. It's hard not to care about it for the reasons we've talked about. I think the fact that the capitalism stuff has either come back around again or never really, in fact, went away. Yeah. I think helps this film to be cared about by a contemporary audience. Even though it's over two hours long, I did not have any difficulty just sitting and watching it all the way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so watchable. And sometimes with older films, that can be a little bit of a struggle. Whether or not you enjoy them, sometimes there's just slow parts. I don't really feel like this film had slow parts. I think everything in its story was necessary. I kind of wish that there was more of the George Bailey not being born stuff. Yeah. That would, of course, make the film much, much longer. Maybe you can cut further up. I don't know. I think it's all pretty necessary. So one thing, it feels kind of rushed. And maybe that's just my impression because we all know the film for that 30 minutes. Yeah. But I do care about it. I think you have to, on an emotional level, care about this film because everyone has that insecurity about themselves in them. Mm-hmm. And to have it affirmed in a character like George Bailey to finally get to him to you know see a win with him in a large way, yeah. is is really nice. So, I think we do care about it, and it's, it's there's a reason why people watch it all the time during Christmas, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, Ethan, that's going to do it for us for today. We will be back next time on the AFI Top 100 with number 19 on the list. That's 1954's On the Waterfront. On the Waterfront. Don't really know anything about that movie. Me neither. We'll learn quite a bit more next time. But until that time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Every time a bell rings, a spoiler gets its wings. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast. You can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.